0: Everyone loves a story of an unexpected hero. Think of some of the most prominent and lucrative uh, pieces of popular fiction in our society today. Think of Star Wars. Spent a lot of time thinking about Star Wars, uh, in which a lonely farmer from a backwoods planet discovers he bears the power and authority to use the Force, this cosmic psychokinetic power, to defeat evil if he doesn't give in to evil first. Um, Luke Skywalker is an unexpected hero if you've ever seen Star Wars movies, or Lord of the Rings, where the smallest and most unassuming of all the world's creatures, the hobbits, uh, masters of soil and vegetables, not swords and violence, they're called upon to bear a burdensome ring that will end war and evil for all the free peoples of Middle-earth. Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee are unexpected heroes. Or, Harry Potter, uh, in which an abused orphan boy discovers he not only possesses magical abilities, but is one of the most important and powerful of all wizards, that he alone can topple the dark wizard, Lord Voldemort. Uh, Harry Potter is an unexpected hero. These are hugely popular franchises, and not just with me, with many millions of people. Angie's rolling her eyes, but people like it, Angie. And it's easy to see why the public, including this member of the public, adores these stories. In the story of the unexpected hero, we can easily place ourselves I may not have the force or the one ring of power or magical abilities, but I can still slide myself effortlessly into these stories. Their struggles with power and corruption, with courage and sacrifice, um, those are my struggles on a much smaller scale. Their painful failures, their reliance on the strength of companions, their inevitable facing off with the enemies, their connection to imperceptible powers at their fingertips, their pursuit of what is good, They speak to me and many of you and to millions of others, uh, millions of people who are called to perform heroic tasks while grappling with our own insignificance and uh, our own smallness. We long to be unexpected heroes called to greatness. Well, today we get to examine the life of a man who fits this mold perfectly. And never mind Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter, Cornelius follows a grand tradition within the most significant piece of literature ever printed with human hands. The Bible is home to Abraham, a farmer from Ur who becomes the father of faith. The Bible is home to Moses, a disgraced prince turned pilgrim who becomes the tool through whom God delivers his people Israel. The Bible is home to David, a little shepherd boy who brings down a blasphemous giant before being anointed the greatest king in Israel's history. Well, the greatest king until the king of all kings, that is. He himself, the king of all kings, was a homeless prophet from the insignificant town of Nazareth who was born to an impoverished virgin teenager before becoming a refugee, then a lowly carpenter, then a rabbi, and then a Messiah. The Lord of all creation, author of salvation, and the greatest of all the unexpected heroes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Aside from all being shepherds and outsiders, the common thread between these heroes, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus, they're not just shepherds, the most significant common thread between the four of them is their faith in the God of Israel. They were men who overcame the odds to become game changers in the great narrative of God rescuing his people, and they did so by relying on the power of their heavenly father. But we have another such game changer in Cornelius, and he is no less unexpected than Frodo or Harry Potter or the shepherd boy David. He is called out of obscurity to be a hero to a group of outsiders. uh, In this case, the Gentiles. And he is called because of his great faith. What we see in Cornelius, we can see in ourselves. An unexpected God-fearing hero who shatters the boundaries between the holy people and their impure neighbors. So this is part one of the longest single narrative in Acts. uh, The story of Cornelius, Peter, and the welcoming of Gentiles into the covenant. No story in Acts takes as much physical space as this story. And I know that I spent two months in chapter 8. I doubt we'll spend two months here in chapters 10 and 11. But Luke wants us to grasp the significance of this story. This story of Cornelius' vision will be repeated or referred to four times in the next two chapters alone, which will help illustrate its super importance. This story represents our birthright into the family of God in a very unexpected way. So let's read about our buddy Corny in Acts 10 verses 1 to 8. In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. That's the story of the calling of Cornelius. I want us to begin today, however, not by talking about Cornelius, but by using our imagination for a second. Something that's harder for grown-ups to do than it is for the kindergartners that I work with, but we're going to try. Um, unfortunately, the scenario that I lay out seems less and less unlikely with each passing week, but for now, it is purely a mental exercise. So if you want to close your eyes, go ahead and do that, but we're going to use our imagination. Imagine that the USA runs out of water and, searching for a weaker neighbor to bully into submission, decides to invade Canada. Okay, it's unlikely, I know that, but just imagine. So now, our American overlords are occupying and oppressing us brutally. Certain factions rise up to fight the Yankee threat, but they are crushed without mercy. Scores of military personnel drive Humvees with eagles on the hood, cruising up and down Highway 2 which has been renamed from the Queen Elizabeth II Highway to the Commander Trump Expressway. Sorry, that's a political humor, perhaps unfunny. Um, But they haul fresh, sweet, sweet fresh water back south to the motherland. American troops march brazenly in the streets, demanding degrading acts of service from their Canadian subjects, us. They kick families out of their houses and onto the curb, using those homes to store servants and weaponry instead. Every male over the age of 12 is conscripted into forced labour camps, pumping and hauling water in the far north for years at a time without seeing their loved ones. Canadian churches are permitted to continue worshipping freely, under the condition that the Star-Spangled Banner is sung before and after each worship service. All water used by Canadians, who are now third-class citizens in their own country, is taxed heavily by their commanders. Worse yet, the collection of those taxes is carried out by traitorous Canadians who pocket many of the proceeds at a cost to their own people. Everywhere you look, there is suppression, repression, and oppression. So, have you got a good handle on your imagination of the situation so far? The situation is pretty bleak. It's also a fairly accurate mirror representation of the, the situation that ancient Jews experienced under the fists of Rome. But now take your imagination one step further. Imagine an American soldier moves into the house across the street from you. And imagine he began bringing his wife and children and servants to this church with you. How would you feel? I, for one, would find that very challenging. I would have none of that. No matter how many times he invited us over for brunch, no matter how many times he waved at me as we mowed our lawns, No matter how many times he brought new winter coats over for our girls, because we're third-class citizens and don't have money anymore. No matter how many times he prevented his fellow officers from confiscating our minivan. No matter how many times he offered to replace the linoleum in the church kitchen. No matter how much kindness or charity or faithfulness to God he displayed, I would never let him off the hook for what he was and what he represented, the oppressors. Behind every smile I would see fangs, or I would imagine fangs. Every act of kindness would betray his brutality. Every word of praise would confirm his treachery. In short, no matter how much he demonstrated a genuine love for God and concern for my family and other families like mine, a part of me would still hate him. And yet, that's exactly who Cornelius is. Cornelius is this neighbor, this occupying force. Cornelius was a centurion of the Italian cohort, meaning He commanded a portion of a legion, about a thousand men. He was a significantly powerful man. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman army, according to ancient historians. He was the face of Rome to many of the Jews in Caesarea and the area around. When they thought of Rome, they thought of Cornelius. He was exactly the kind of person who a man like Simon the Zealot would have risen up against. If you are a first century Jew, You likely felt the same way about men like Cornelius as I would feel about this mythical American soldier in my neighborhood. And yet, the New Testament has this long-running tradition of treating centurions as heroes. In Matthew 8, Jesus has a run-in with a centurion who has a suffering and paralyzed servant. And so he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, I know that you can heal my servant." And Jesus says, okay, show me the way. And this man says, no, no, no. I know that you're so powerful. All you need to do is speak the word from here and he will be healed. Jesus eventually declares this in verses 10 and 11. He says, Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Sorry, the kingdom of heaven. This is the first interaction Uh, Jesus has with the Gentile in the gospel of Matthew. It's with this centurion. And he declares this centurion more faithful than any man in Israel. And what a slap in the face that must have felt like to the Pharisees who were standing there listening to this. This guy, this man is the most faithful in all of Israel. This Gentile, this Gentile whose job it is to oppress the Jews. This guy is a model of faith for all of Israel. Can you imagine how incredulous the people would have felt? Well, Jesus made a promise to that faithful centurion and it begins to come true, that promise begins to come true through the faithfulness of today's centurion, Cornelius. Cornelius is the battering ram through whom the gate that keeps the Gentiles out of the covenant is broken down. And soon enough in Acts, all people from the east and the west, the north and the south, from everywhere, will take their place in the feast of the faithful men like Abraham, the unexpected heroes, who hear the call of Jesus and are welcomed into the kingdom. Jesus promised this to an earlier centurion, and it's through this centurion that that promise begins to be fulfilled, more obviously. Later in Matthew, in Matthew 27, after Jesus dies on the cross and a terrible earthquake shakes the dead from their graves, it's a centurion who first proclaims, surely he was the son of God. He sees all that's happening at the death of Jesus and he proclaims. He's the first to proclaim. Surely he is the son of God. Not a Sadducee. It's not a Sadducee who proclaims that. It's not a disciple of Jesus who proclaims that. It's not some Jewish bystander who proclaims that. It's a Gentile. It's a centurion. It's an enemy who had perhaps been joining in the mocking just hours earlier, who had perhaps watched with a smile as others gambled for his clothes, who perhaps held the cane that beat Jesus. We, We don't know, but he's one of them. He's one of the enemy, and he's the one who sees Jesus for who he truly is, an unjust sacrifice of God's Holy Son. He recognizes what's happening here. A powerful man, a centurion, sent to his knees in witness to the death of the eternal power of Jesus Christ. And so now we have Cornelius, another apparent enemy of God who turns out to be a paragon of true faithfulness an officer in the army that occupies and persecutes God's people is an unlikely character for the enormous events that are beginning to unfold in God's kingdom. If you were going to pick who's going to be the one to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to invite the Gentiles into the covenant, who's going to be the one to do that? I know many of us would pick a Roman centurion. But God picked him. And not only is he a centurion, but Cornelius is a centurion in Caesarea. If centurions represented... Uh, the evil of Rome to the Palestinians. Well, then Caesarea represented Rome in a much more deliberate way. Consulting the big map omissions, we see that Caesarea was about 35 kilometers from Joppa, the last known location of Peter. And in fact, Cornelius gets sent to Joppa, or he sends word to Joppa to find Peter. Caesarea was the center of the Roman administrative power in the area of Judea, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So God's people are in this General area, right? And right smack in the middle of it is Caesarea. And Caesarea is this Roman administrative force of a city. It was a big, showy city, mostly consisting of Gentiles, unlike most cities in the area, which were primarily Jewish or some offshoot of Judaism. Um, This city was primarily Gentiles. It even had a lavish temple to Caesar in amongst the synagogues. Jews hated Caesarea in the same way that an occupied Alberta would hate Grand Prairie if the Americans chose Grand Prairie to turn into their capital in Alberta. I don't know why I picked Grand Prairie. I got no problem with Grand Prairie. But imagine if when the Americans came and took over and they say, we're going to establish our main military base here in Grand Prairie, and there's going to be huge American flags flying everywhere. How much would we resent Grand Prairie for what it came to represent? Right? That's what Caesarea is. When the war between the Jews and the Romans began in AD 66, it began in Caesarea, this sort of boiling kettle of hate between God's people and the world. And when that war began, the Romans went to Caesarea and crushed the Jews. They killed 20,000 people, 20,000 Jews, just in Caesarea. So he's not just a Roman centurion, the face of Rome, but he lives in Caesarea which is, to the Jews, basically Rome itself. It was a very, he would have been a very hated man in a very hated place. Those are two big strikes against Cornelius. And yet, he was a hero. He's a hero. Why? Why did the Holy Spirit speak to this man, calling this man to summon another man named Simon Peter from the home of Simon the Tanner beside the seashore in Joppa? It's a very simple calling. He obeys it immediately. Despite his initial fear and terror at the sight of the angel, he obeys immediately. But what makes Cornelius so special? Why did the angel appear to him? Well, the same thing that made the centurion in Matthew 8 the greatest example of faith in all of Israel is the reason why Cornelius is a great example of faith. It's precisely because of those two big strikes against him that Cornelius' faithfulness stood out so boldly. He's a man of power, of prestige. He is a man of Roman principles. He's a man sent to, to keep the Jews in line. And despite all that, he still seeks out and believes and fears and loves and worships the God of the Israelites. His was not a religion based on cold morality or self-righteous rules or heartless ritual as it had become for so many Jewish believers. His was much more genuine than that. His was a religion that represented true worship. Did you catch what time the angel showed up to Cornelius? It's about three in the afternoon. Um, The ninth hour is the literal translation. And three in the afternoon is one of the mandated times of prayer for Jewish believers. They would, uh, just like Muslims now, will bow towards Mecca. At three o'clock in the afternoon, Jewish believers would stop whatever they're doing and spend time in prayer. It's actually a really beautiful discipline that they had. And the reason Luke mentions the angel showed up at 3 o'clock is the insinuation that at 3 o'clock, Cornelius was doing what any faithful believer would do, spending time in prayer to the Almighty. In fact, Cornelius' constant prayers to the Almighty represented the God-word direction of his heart, while his acts of charity, mentioned by Luke, represented his neighbor-word direction of his heart. He may have never heard Jesus declare it. I don't know if he had ever been around to hear Jesus's teachings, seems unlikely that he had, since he's a Roman living in Caesarea. We don't know for sure, but whether or not he had been there to, to hear Jesus' teachings, he certainly lived out what Jesus calls the greatest of all the commandments, which is, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Go ahead and say it with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The reason that Cornelius is chosen for this task is because he is clearly demonstrating those two things. His great love and fear for God and his great love for others. He had clearly read Micah 6.8, which is a really beautiful, beautiful passage that says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Despite what people thought of him, he would have gone to the synagogues to, to pray and to hear the readings in the scriptures and to hear the teachings. He would have gone to synagogue. He would have gone to the market. He would have been surrounded by Jewish people all the time. And I'm sure as he did those things, he he experienced sneers. And that would be understandable because of his officer's robes, because of what he represented. I'm sure people would cross around him and jeer at him and treat him with scorn because of who he was. Despite his inability to fully enter into worship of the God he loved because of his Gentile impurity, despite all of this, Cornelius was faithful. He respected and obeyed the God of Israel, even though all of Israel hated and rejected him, both personally and ceremonially. Even, it it seems as though he is a well-respected man. I'm kind of going overboard here. It, It seems as though the people of his time respect Cornelius, right? doesn't seem like he's somebody who's hated by the Jewish community. And certainly, if there's an oppressor who treats you well, you would prefer that to an oppressor who treats you harshly. Especially if this oppressor worships with you and is kind to you and kind to people like you. I'm sure he wasn't as hated as I may. I'm just trying to highlight what he represents. But even if he is as respected as as can be, he still isn't pure enough to become a full jew he's he's still an outsider ceremonially socially personally people would have treated him as an outsider no matter how good he was quick note at this point in the sermon marnie reminds us that in verse 22 uh cornelius is described as righteous and respected by the jews and i respond to that Mm mm-hmm yeah the, the the image we get isn't of a man who is hated, but I the reason I took that tack is to emphasize how much of an outsider he is, how unlikely actually and unexpected it is that this is the man who welcomes the Gentile, who who breaks down the door for Peter to begin to realize that the Gentiles can be welcomed into the covenant. So yeah, the, the centurion that Jesus heals his servant you get the impression that he is a well-respected man as well. But he's still the enemy. He still is Rome incarnate. He still is the face and the fist of Rome. And if these same Jews had begun to uprise, he would have been the one who would have had to put them down. It would have been his job, and they knew that. And so, to summarize, his job represented everything that was wrong with the world outside of Judaism. That's his job. Everything that's corrupt, and evil in the world. But his heart represented everything that was good and true and beautiful about the world inside of Judaism. And so he was chosen to be the one instrumental to bringing those two conflicting worlds together into one kingdom. He's unexpected, but when you think about it, he's actually kind of the perfect man for this job. His job represented the evil of the world, but his heart represented a love of God that was supposed to be found only in Judaism. And so he bridges those two things. He was compassionate. He was worshipful. He was faithful. He was obedient. Even though, and this is what makes it remarkable, even though he was a total outsider. Cornelius is Luke Skywalker. He is Father Abraham. He is you and he is me. He represents all the unexpected people who are chosen for great things in the kingdom because they love God and love their neighbors. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, remember that story, um, the gospel is being brought steadily towards the margins of those previously deemed unacceptable. But also like the Ethiopian eunuch, God makes himself known to a Gentile outsider because their hearts are ready for it. It wasn't just any Ethiopian. It was an Ethiopian who had gone to Jerusalem to the temple to worship and was now reading the scrolls of Isaiah on his way home. It wasn't just any centurion. It was a centurion who gave to the poor and who prayed regularly throughout the day. A man whose heart was inclined towards God. These aren't just any Gentiles. These are Gentiles with a predisposition towards the God of Israel. And that's a big difference. They are God-fearers, which was the term used for non-Jews who respected respected the Jews and, and worshipped the God of Israel. They weren't full covenant bearers. They weren't in the family. They were like third cousins. They were able to be there and be around them and and worship beside them, but not with them. But the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, they represent people who are outsiders who behave like insiders. They already know and fear and worship the God of Israel. Their inclusion into the plan of salvation is perhaps a mere formality, frankly, necessary for the hearts of the insiders who would never themselves deem these filthy Gentiles worthy, In the first place but God he had this plan since the first outsider was called to become an insider since the call of Abraham I will make you a great nation and the whole earth will be blessed through you the first time an outsider is called unexpectedly was Abraham Well, you could argue I guess that it's Noah or whoever before but in in the great narrative of God redeeming his people it's Abraham and so even back then the plan was to include these Gentiles and so especially when we look at the story of what's going to happen to Peter coming up, you get the impression that this isn't happening so much for the Gentiles as it is for the Jews who reject the Gentiles. It's more for the insiders who treat those outsiders as unworthy than it is for those unworthy outsiders to be welcomed in. And so Cornelius is a crucial reminder of two things. This is how I'm going to end. One of them is a bit longer, so don't get your hopes up too high. But two things in conclusion. First, he is a reminder that God is in the habit of choosing unexpected outsiders to burst through barriers between himself and his creatures. That is our call, to make disciples. And to make disciples, we have to first become a disciple. And it is unexpected to me that I get to be a disciple. What have I done to deserve it? Nothing. I'm unfaithful and wayward a lot of the time. So it's unexpected that he calls and and shapes me into a disciple and then asks me, to go and break down barriers, to make other disciples. That is unexpected. And it should be unexpected to you too. That should lead you to humility and praise. We should read this story and see ourselves in Cornelius. If our hearts and our religion are kept pure by loving God and loving our neighbors, then we too can be chosen by the Holy Spirit for amazing acts of service. Acts of service that expand his kingdom by bringing his invitation out to fellow outsiders like us. Do you expect to be used by God? It's a bit of a loaded question. Do you expect to be used by God? Others might not expect it in you, but you should expect it, because that's exactly the habit that God has gotten into, of using people who don't expect it to do amazing things. He is very much in in the, the business of using unexpected people for unexpected service that has unexpectedly enormous impacts on his kingdom. So we may be small, relatively insignificant. We we may not be anybody in the cosmic sense, but that's exactly who he chooses to unexpect, to do unexpectedly great things. People just like you and me. Which brings me to crucial reminder number two, and this is a little trickier. But it's an important reminder to us who are comfortable insiders in the Western church. We are white, we are middle class, we are Canadians. There is no privilege unavailable to me and to you. We've got it pretty good. Especially me, because I am of a gender that tends to fabricate superiority and then lord it over our companion gender. I am more privileged than anyone ever in the history of humanity. And many of you are too. All of us are, to some degree. So I had better listen up to this second reminder from the life of Cornelius, which is this. Not only will God choose us unexpectedly, but he is also at work choosing others who we might deem unacceptable to be fellow servants in his kingdom as well. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a quick history lesson in the last hundred years of the church, the church in North America. There are churches who deem people of African origin unfit to be labeled human, let alone brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Yet there was God performing unbelievable acts of power and grace, calling those who white people had deemed lesser to be equals in the church. Not greater, not less, equals. Brothers and sisters, all of us. There are those who treat women as inferior, even though there are heroes in scripture and in church history. And in this very church, who would demonstrate that women are just as much titans of faith as men. They just happen to be female. It shouldn't be unexpected that a woman would be a hero in faith, but our patriarchal church says that it is unexpected. And so in the last 100 years, it's been a necessary movement for women to be equal to men. There are people who call themselves Christians who scoff at and belittle the traumas and systematic oppressions forced on First Nations people in our land today. That little scenario that I had us imagine of an occupying force coming in and taking our land from us, that was imaginary. But it was not imaginary for the Indigenous peoples of Canada. That was exactly what happened. That's not a mental exercise. That's Canadian history. They were, there were so many acts of injustice boils the blood to think of it. There are so many acts of injustice carried out by a church who could not imagine God working among unexpected people like the Cree or the Blackfoot or the Inuit people who were already there. They couldn't imagine God showing something to them about his kingdom and so they wiped them out. They were less than them. There are people who the church deems unacceptable because of their political background, because of their sexual orientation, because of their financial situation, because of their personal history of bad choices and I question all of that. Not to say that I have the answers, but to say that I rightfully question that. I'm not even talking about the morality of those things, about what is moral. I think what we've seen from Jesus is that the morality is something that comes after the acceptance. It is shaped by the acceptance. We are too quick, way too quick as a church, to dismiss people based on superficial things. Are any of those people as unexpected as an officer in the evil Roman army in the pagan city of Caesarea being chosen as the one to open the door for the Gentiles to be brought into the fold for the gospel to go out into the whole world. Who's more unexpected? Who's more impure and probably the wrong person for this pure and holy job than a Roman officer? Who's more an enemy of God than the face of Rome itself? And so the crucial reminder for me is this. Whoever it is that I think is unacceptable to the kingdom of God is my brother or sister for exactly that reason. Because I think they're unacceptable. I should see myself in that unacceptableness. This is, again, I'm not commenting on what is moral, what is ethical. I'm not commenting on Christian values. I'm commenting on whether those of us who have those Christian values Will take a risk, take a leap of faith, and do as Jesus does and welcome those people in so they can know that light and that life. There's people that we write off immediately. There's people that I write off immediately because of some superficial thing. But there are also probably Jewish people who wrote off people like Cornelius. And yet it's Cornelius who's given this great task. It's Cornelius who showed faith greater than any in Israel. Showed a love for God and a love for others. It wasn't some Jew who got this job. It was a Roman soldier who got this job, an outsider. And th- I mean, that makes sense. Think of what Jesus did. Jesus' inner circle included a tax collector, hated, a violent zealot, that's immoral, a hot headed fisherman, he's nobody, a former prostitute, and a traitorous thief. Those are just some of the people we know are in Jesus' inner circle. Those are just some of their backgrounds that we know about. None of those are people you would expect to be leaders of this great movement of people who love and follow Jesus. He spoke of the meek inheriting the earth. That's really unexpected. He spoke of good Samaritans. Isn't that an oxymoron? He spoke of a widow's two coins being the greatest offering in all Israel. He spoke of sinners being more righteous than Pharisees. Those are all unexpected teachings. Backwards teachings, in fact, to the believers as they were constituted in Jesus' day. He forgave adulteresses. Of course, he told them to sin no more, and I cannot, I I can't leave that part out. But he forgave adulteresses. He took children on his lap and treated them with the worth and dignity that, that they were supposed to have. He partied, partied, not sat down. He had fun with. He got to know. He enjoyed the presence of sinners. So much so that people pointed their finger at him and said, there's no way this guy can be a rabbi. Look who he's hanging out with. Look who he's partying with. Of course, I'm not saying he got drunk. He did not. I'm not saying he endorsed bad behavior at those parties. But I'm saying he went to those parties and hung out with those people and showed love to them. He touched lepers, something nobody else would dare to do. He canceled the sins of the paralyzed which, as we saw last week, is this bold, outrageous claim, unless you can back it up. He shepherded the lost. He refuted the wise and the powerful false leaders of his day. All of those, all of them are examples of including or excluding people in unexpected ways. Everyone he welcomed and included and taught and loved was a small, unexpected person. And he himself was the most unexpected of all. A homeless drifter who was nothing special to look at, who could command the seas and the skies, the physical and the spiritual realms. He suffered abandonment and death in order to conquer them for all time and rise again as the glorious Lord of creation. Is that something you would expect from your Messiah? It is now that you know the story. But if you were any Jew at any time before 2,000 years ago, that is not how you saw the plan unfolding at all. He was just a carpenter's boy from Galilee. So my encouragement to you and to me is to think twice before you say that you've got a grasp on who exactly God is working amongst. To think twice before you tell me that you know who's in and who's out. His grace is bigger than yours is. Because if Cornelius tells me anything, it's this. Jesus chooses the most unlikely, unassuming, unspectacular people to do the most amazing things. I mean... Just in the last few weeks in in Acts, Cornelius is an example of this. Uh, Ananias is an example of this. Saul himself is an example of this. Stephen, Peter, Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. All these people are unexpected people that God uses to do amazing things. And it doesn't matter what their background was. Once they encounter the light, they're changed forever. It's our job to bring that light so people can encounter it. Whoever they are. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying... Everyone is okay and and everyone is going to be saved and everyone is, is good with God. That's clearly not true. What I'm challenging is the idea that we exclude people on the basis of those things before they even have a chance to become insiders in the kingdom. And I hate that. And I think Jesus hates it too. But our job is to make sure that our heart is pure by loving our Lord and loving our neighbor, including those neighbors that we think are unacceptable. Our job is to open ourselves up to his love and his grace in order to spread them like fire to those around us. If we do that, then we may be called to the most unexpected adventures that our unexpected Lord can dream up. Adventures that shatter walls between us, not build walls between us. So watch out. You might be the next Frodo, or the next Moses, or the next Cornelius. Keep serving, and he will use you to do unexpectedly great things. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, it is unexpected that you called us to be your servants. But what a privilege and what an honor. And so I pray that we would take this love and this grace that we know and reflect it back to a world who needs to know it as well. I pray that we would faithfully proclaim the message that all can be invited to the party, that all are welcome into the kingdom, that we would lay down whatever biases people would have had against Cornelius, whatever biases we have in our hearts against others, I pray we would lay those down to show love to people who need your love. Thank you that even though we are small and insignificant, that you love us so much, you value us just as much as these heroes we read about in the Bible, and you call us to do just as great of things. Acts of love, acts of grace to a a dark world. Help us to be faithful to that calling. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Here Trish tells a story about a, a mother who came to pick up a child at our Bible club and said... I'm Wicca, but we want our child to come to this, and it was a great story. Just couldn't hear it in the mics. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we, Angie and I, just as we were leaving school on Thursday, had a mom say, look, I don't believe this, this is not our religion, Um, but our kids really want to go to church, would it be okay if we drop them off every every once in a while for church with you? And we won't be there, can we drop our kids off? Because they loved ABC. Again, that's They're outsiders who got a taste of the light and now may become insiders. And if that's not what it's all about, then what's it all about?